This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 16, with guest Judith Dada. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Sovorova, and welcome to today's episode. Previously at Facebook, Judith managed European marketing strategy for Amazon and a venture capital initiative. Today, she's a general partner at La Familia, a European seed stage venture capital fund investing into B2B technology companies that enable and disrupt large industries. Join me for today's conversation with Judith Dada and learn how to scout best founders and set your investment strategy right for the years to come. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading those. Judith, great to have you in the studio today. Welcome. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Although you really worked a lot with data analysis and research, and you also studied in Oxford Internet Institute, in one of your interviews, you mentioned that one of your regrets were that you didn't get to study computer science specifically. Why is that so? So I have the pleasure of being married to a computer scientist. And, um, you know, whenever um, there's something that I don't quite understand about the intricacies of how technology works, I can always turn to him and I'm always fascinated by his answers and the depth of knowledge because I think we live in a world where technology is all encompassing and it really surrounds everything that we do. But very often, you know, if you ask like, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z, like, you know, how does the internet actually work? Like, you know, how does a computer work? Most people are not able to tell you and we just take technology for granted. It has a huge influence, you know, on our lives. So I think really understanding the basics of it is super, super, you know, important to making sure that we're also able to shape technology back and it doesn't just shape us. I think that's the one thing. And then the other thing is just also that I think it's just fascinating, right? Like sometimes we discuss like Turing, you know, and we discuss like the logics of how, you know, computers work. And I think it's just like a deeply fascinating topic because it's almost philosophical in some sense, right? And I think many, you know, especially women think if they want to study something that is almost an art, you know, they need to turn to the social sciences or, you know, the humanities. But I actually think, you know, physics, maths, computer science, it has art forms in it and it's got, you know, deep logic to it. And I think we should be doing more advertisement for that so that mm. more women go and study that subject. And you yourself, you always wanted to go even more into technology and computer science. You were always driven towards it. Exactly. So I, you know, I started out studying social science in Munich. Um, and then I signed up for this class called technology management, because I was all about, you know, getting into tech and understanding how that works. And then from there, as you said, I went to we call it internet school. <laughs> so it's the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, it's actually fantastic, because you really get to study the internet. And you can either focus on, you know, very qualitative aspects of it, or you can focus more on the actual technological foundations, machine learning, big data, which was more what I did. Um, so it was a little bit of a, you know, small dive into technology from that side of the story. But still, it doesn't, unfortunately, because it's just a one year degree, it doesn't give you the all, you know, kind of full blown <laughs> background that you would get if you were studying computer science 101. And what was that moment when you realized you want to do more than data analysis and working with data research and that you want to step into the shoes of an investor? So it wasn't really, I would say, you know, that one moment in my life where I woke up and I had this epiphany and, and went and, you know, 
went for it. So for me, I think it was more gradual process. I was working at Facebook. I was working with very large customers that were very data driven. So I was working, you know, with engineers and, you know, other sales and marketing folks on a day-to-day basis. But then at the same time, I kind of just got this itching in my fingers, right? I mean, you know, I loved working at Facebook. The culture was fantastic. And, you know, they really invest so much in talent and in really activating and, and you know, kind of helping you along your uh, career path. But at the same time, you know, like Facebook is this gigantic U.S. American company. And if they were based in Dublin, you know, for like certain tax purposes, and I was spending lots of time in the U.S. And it just felt like, you know, I have this like burning passion for Europe and for Germany. And I think Europe stands for so many beautiful things. And it just felt a little bit odd, right, that I was like kind of working day in, day out. And, you know, Facebook is going to be fine, you know, and, and, you know, Amazon, which was a lot of my time back in the day, like they're going to be fine. And just felt like, you know, maybe I should spend my time, you know, where it can make a, a bigger impact than what I was doing back in the day. And so that's, I think, the itching that I got in my in my fingers. And then I was working with lots of VC funds and founders and to help scale their businesses and help them, you know, with some kind of, you know, more data-driven strategies and, you know, really helping to explain how the algorithm uh, on the Facebook platform works and all, all that. So I was really starting to get more into that world. And then at some point, you know, someone introduced Jeanette to me and we had a call and, you know, it was scheduled for 30 minutes. We ended up chatting for like more than an hour and we just got along really well. So it was very much a gut feel decision at that point. It wasn't this like grand master plan that one morning I woke up, it was really just like, I have a super good feeling about this. And so I decided to quit my job and, you know, move to Berlin and join like a very early stage, you know, not so well known back in the day kind of venture capital fund. Yeah, and that's where. But how did that moment click? And how do you think what was the main drivers that you felt the La Familia and just to introduce La Familia's European seed stage venture capital fund investing into B2B technology companies? Like, what was that moment that, yes, this is the right next step for me? This is where I want to be. So it was really person driven, right? So a, a lot of it was just Jeanette and, you know, that kind of, you know, strong feeling that I've had about working with her. And I think it's, it's, it's also important to know that it's a fund launched by a woman, which is also quite rare. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing was my husband, um, who's, who also founded a company, he had already gotten funding from La Familia and he had, you know, fantastic stories to share about them and really said they, they add a lot of value and are very, very helpful partners on their kind of, you know, B2B entrepreneurial path. So there was a couple of data points that were coming together. And I think, you know, venture capital in itself and the ability to help founders in the earliest stages is certainly also something that resonates. And beyond that, the bigger, you know, European story there, where I felt like, you know, I could be part of driving the change that I want to see in the world, as, you know, cliche as that might sound. So, you know, it was just a couple of things coming together. I saw your interview together uh, with Jeanette, and I feel like there's really great synergy between the two of you. How do you work together and how do you embrace each other's strengths? So I think Jeanette is someone who's, you know, very, very visionary. She's very focused, um, you know, on getting ahead in terms of, you know, exploring new strategies for the fund and, you know, really pushing the boundaries of what we think we might be able to do. Um, I think I'm more the person who then makes sure that on the execution side, you know, everything runs smoothly. Um, you know, so I'm based in Berlin, you know, with part of the rest of the team. The rest of the team is also distributed. So we've always been, you know, part remote for the past couple of years. But I think we've got this really, really strong synergy where Jeanette is kind of, you know, the one pushing the boundary. And I'm, you know, the one making sure on the execution side, you know, things run perfectly. 
Before we speak more about La Familia, I also would like to understand so how did your background in tech and working with data really equipped you for your new role as an investor? And do you think it's for modern day investor, maybe it's a really a must have to have that tech background? I think it certainly helps. I don't think it's a must. And I would say if I had to choose, to be quite frank, in the early stage, you know, seed stage investing, I think my social science background almost helps me more than, you know, any type of like, you know, data background that I have. Because I think at the end of the day, it's all about people and, and markets. And of course, there's, you know, products and you need to, you know, make sure that you don't invest into something that's like completely off in terms of, you know, kind of quality and, and certainly, you know, technical understanding helps there. But overall, it's really about kind of pattern recognition and a lot of the patterns that are out there in the markets and the way that our societies, our economies are changing, I think that's really the social science skill set, right? It's, it's being able to ask questions, you know, being able to analyze the answers both quantitatively and, and qualitatively, and then putting that together into a bigger picture. Um, so we always say that, you know, when we do reference calls with founders or with experts in the market, if you're a bad investor, I think if you just believe everything that people are telling you, and also you won't be able to, you know, get anything done because there's, you know, a thousand opinions on stuff out there. So really sifting through that, right, and really kind of, you know, analyzing what now, you know, enriches your hypothesis about something, what's maybe also a conflicting piece of information, and how do you balance that in terms of, you know, where you think the world is moving and, and what the big companies of tomorrow will look like. I think really that's the skill set that investing is all about. And I think, a more qualitative or, you know, social science oriented skill set helps as much in that as, you know, a deep technological understanding of what's out there. And for you then as an investor to work with uh, seed startups, was it a bit outside of the comfort zone that you had to now look at the human factor into the teams, uh, understanding the founder, rather than to looking into a heavy data backed information? I wouldn't say so. I think, you know, I've always been someone who connects very well with people. And, you know, even back in the day at Facebook, I mean, you know, yes, a lot of the, a lot of the analysis was, you know, more data driven, but at the end of the day, you still, it was still a sales job, right? So you still had to convince people, you know, of your point of view. And of course you use data to back that up, but at the end of the day, it's also, you know, just selling what's in front of you. So I think the job of a VC is also, you know, a sales job to a certain extent, because the reality is it's a founder's market. It's not a VC's market anymore, which is great for founders. I would say it's the best time ever to start your company because founders have so much influence and, and they should have. But I think that means that, you know, VCs are really now tasked with selling what they can bring to the table, you know, selling that authentically, not overselling, not giving you the full like, oh, we can do everything. And, you know, here's a big bouquet of, you know, any wish that you could have fulfilled tomorrow, because I think founders are also starting to look through that, you know, but I think it was more of a natural shift for me because I had never worked, you know, only as a researcher where the the underlying subjects were completely abstracted away. And then even in social science research, I mean, you know, it's all about the subjects in front of you. It's all about people. It's all about, you know, companies and the people behind them. So I think even in science, you can't really abstract away the human as a bigger side of the story. From what I was reading, La Familia is not only a VC, but above all, a very close network, which almost should feel like a family. Well, that makes sense from the name of the um, fund. Did La Familia derive this idea from approach and mindset of Y Combinator in the early days? No, <laughs> uh, we love Y Combinator, and we, you know, we backed uh, startups from there who are fantastic. But, but I think you know, La Familia started out as just you know 
quoting Jeanette here, who was really, you know, part of the one of the kind of group of people who started it back in the day, it was more, you know, a burning passion for European technology and then bringing together people who very authentically already stood for that, right? Family entrepreneurs, family businesses who have been around, for, you know, very often not for decades, but much, much longer than that. And, you know, who really also want to um, persevere both for their own companies, but for the bigger ecosystem that we're building in Europe and, and knowing that, you know, parts of their business might be disrupted. Other parts will be enabled by technology, but, but really, you know, sharing the information and sharing the access to be able to push the new generation of entrepreneurs forward in doing that. And as you mentioned, you're working in the intersection of established industry and entrepreneurship. And what are some of the challenges here? Oh, there's tons of challenges. So I think, you know, the biggest challenge is always the established companies have everything to lose and the new entrants have everything to gain. So that's that's always a big clash, right? Because the one side is trying to protect assets. The other side is trying to, you know, build up, if not exploit, you know, new opportunities for gaining market share. So the classic, you know, innovators dilemma is something that we face very often. I think the other barrier is more cultural, right? It's the it's the language you speak. It's the way you think about, you know, building trust, you know, leveraging relationships. I think in the more established industries or, you know, established companies, many relationships with clients, with partners, they've been built over decades, right? And startups need to um, on the other side, be able to prove many things in such a short period of time, right? So they want to move fast, you know, they want to break things and be okay with that. But for many more established companies, it's not okay if you break things, right? Because it's something, it's it's a foundation of trust that you've built for such a long time. So you really want to, you know, um, see it as something fragile and, you know, be able to protect it. So, you know, there's tons of challenges in, in those two sides coming together. But I think at the end of the day, what kind of unites them is their their entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think in a social economy, you know, the way that we have it in Germany, uh, but also many European countries, you know, we want to be able to preserve the values, we want to be able to have an inclusive society, but that comes from an economic strength. And that comes from, you know, businesses that work, <laughs> and that are able to compete, you know, on the world stage. So I think that's something that both sides understand very well. And that can also then open up opportunities for collaborating. And when we are speaking about B2C startups and B2B startups, I would assume it's a lot harder for the former ones to reach the established economy and have the right network to pitch their solutions. And is this the case? And is this something that La Familia is trying to help with? I mean, certainly, right? I think, you know, when I was working at Facebook, I was always joking because like everyone was starting, you know, their direct to consumer brand or, you know, some online business because it was just so easy, right? All the resources for a lot of the consumer innovation are completely democratized and anyone can, you know, launch something. You then probably need venture funding pretty quickly to be able to survive the marketing war that goes on. But but the overall entry point is actually, you know, more open than ever. And that's great because we keep seeing more female founders, more diverse founders really breaking into that more consumer side of the market. Whereas in B2B, right? Like if you want to close an enterprise account, you know, it's very often, you know, people that are A, not necessarily that even obvious from, you know, the social networks that we have. So even being able to navigate a big enterprise that might be interested in your solution in terms of finding, you know, who the right person is to, to speak to, to pitch your solution, understanding what their agenda is in terms of, you know, what, what do they need to achieve? What's the innovation goals for the company? How does my solution fit into that? And then being able to, you know, count, like, you know, just jump through the countless hoops of like GDPR and, you know, this ISO certificate and, you know, this stress test, which is all fair because the big enterprises, you know, they've got, you know, kind of big infrastructures or, you know, big demands also to be able to fulfill. 
their their kind of overall quality uh, standards. So that can be tough for an early stage company. And then that can mean that, you know, maybe some of those companies take a little bit longer, you know, in the beginning to show results in comparison to companies that can, you know, directly link marketing spend to revenue growth. But it doesn't mean that the opportunity is any smaller. How do you help founders? So where do you go extra mile with La Familia? And that is not typical to other VCs, let's say in Germany. So I think a lot of the value add that we try to focus on is really opening doors with potential partners or um, clients. So a lot of sales support, you know, a lot of introductions, a lot of, and um, before it used to be more kind of, you know, offline events, because that's a great way for building trust between, you know, bigger companies and, and startups. Now with COVID, we've shifted a lot online. So we host a ton of webinars and you know, really try to um, do some experience sharing and just also, you know, kind of network building for our founders. Um, but really, you know, focusing on that. We also support with, you know, hiring where we can and all these things, but that's not, you know, kind of a deep specialty of us. I think we really excel in, you know, we try and get you, you know, customers, we try and get you partners, we try and launch you into the market, you know, make you make you be seen as, you know, a reputable company that's here for the long run that will persist and that will be able to kind of carry its weight on your way to, to a successful outcome with your clients. I was also reading that you try to embrace a strong bond between the founders. Why is that very important that founders support each other and learn from each other? I mean, I think a founder's job can be so lonely and so challenging, it's especially when you look at, you know, younger founders that are not the classic serial entrepreneurs. They're growing along so many different dimensions. Very often, it's the first time building a company. Sometimes it's really the first job after leaving university. It's the first time hiring a team. It's the first time firing team members. It's the first time, you know, raising a series A. It's it's the first time for so many different things. And, you know, sometimes it's also... Um, you know, private challenges that come on top of that. You know, very often we back founders who are, you know, any anywhere aged between 25 to 35. So first time becoming a parent, you know, first time going through so many different things and changes in life. And that can be challenging. And I think we try to be a trusted partner and we really try to, you know, let founders know that they can come to us with anything, but we're not, you know, naive, you know, we're, we're investors at the end of the day. So we also understand if founders are not going to, you know, completely, you know, tell us about every single challenge that goes on, on in their life. And that's totally fine. And so, you know, also making sure that they have a founder network that they can rely on and, you know, ask the types of questions to that they feel comfortable um, in that situation. I think that's something that we also think is very important. And today you're more than three years at La Familia. And when do you look back? How has those years looked to you? What were the really maybe highs and lows of that journey with the fund? I think, A, the time went by so fast. I know you always say that. And I think the more I say it, the, the older I feel, even though I'm still, I think, fairly young for someone working in venture capital. But, you know, it feels like yesterday, you know, when I left Facebook and, and joined. And then I think, you know, the ups and downs. I mean, you know, we do portfolio reviews on a quarterly basis, you know, where we just openly discuss our companies and our investments. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a company's on top and you know you're really really psyched for everything that's happening and then you know the next quarter they're struggling and you know and you're struggling as part of that because you're rooting for them you know and you want them to succeed and you want to help them succeed and so i think it's just the ups and downs of you know venture capital and you know early stage investing where you know there's successes there's failures there's challenges but overall i think it's i've just been incredibly grateful you know anytime i i chat to any of my friends or my family 
just the job of being able to do your best to identify the winners of tomorrow and then being able to support them and just also seeing teams grow. I think that just gives me so much just energy and motivation, you know, just seeing them hire other fantastic people and, you know, companies at the end of the day are multipliers, you know, and they're building organisms and structures that at some point, you know, self-replicate. And that's fantastic to see, you know, it's not just the talent that we have within Germany. It's very often the talent that comes in from abroad, right? Like some of the people that join our early stage companies are super, you know, highly qualified engineers, you know, maybe from other parts of the world, from Asia, you know, from other European countries. Some some of them have been on their first flight in their whole life, you know, relocating for the job at that company. You know, you're changing lives of people and, you know, their families that sometimes come with them. So it's so multifaceted, really. But there's just a ton of awe, I would say, right? Mm -hmm. Awe for for the type of industry we're working in. Just glad that I am able to be a part of it. Super exciting. Like makes me very hyped as well <laughs> for everything you say. Maybe you could share some of the highlights or investments that you would say maybe you're very proud of or you would really would like to share a few words about them and the founders just to better understand, you know, what drives your interest and where you see that very strong founder and startup. There's tons of companies that I'm excited about. And I think I'd be super happy. To, I think we can have a separate podcast just speaking about all the amazing founders that we've backed. But I think if I had to call, you know, a group of our founders out, I'll call out the female founders in our portfolio. And there's a couple of really, you know, fantastic ones. I'll drop a couple of names, Maria, you know, Sophie. There's just amazing women out there who are founding companies, you know, in different fields. We've got a founder who's, you know, founded a specialty chemicals company and a CRM for that. We've got a founder who's, you know, a very, very uh, successful AI engineer, and she's building up a, a big AI infrastructure platform. We've got a founder who's, you know, really enabling the future of virtual events and team bonding activities and, you know, forming culture for teams that are not able to see themselves every day. So there's just such a breadth of amazing ideas, you know, and female CEOs that are driving their businesses forward. So I'll call them out every single one within our portfolio because they're doing absolutely fantastic work. If we just go back to a little bit into the basics and how you approach your work, what do you look for in startups? Um, what are some of the must-haves? I think we're not that different or not different from, you know, most other VCs and what we look for. We look for, you know, a stellar founding team that has some type of unfair advantage in the way that they see the opportunity or what they bring to the table to be able to form a solution We look for a big market and, and very often also an emerging market, you know, that has high growth potential. Um, we look for, you know, a strong product understanding. It doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's, you know, worked as a product manager before, but people who are really able to understand what their customers want and, you know, abstract all the details away into something that then, you know, is a feature set that is applicable for a bigger set of, of customers. So, You know, those are really kind of the, the three points I, I think that are most um, important. We also always ask the question of why now? Um, you know, so very often it's not the best team that wins and it's not the best product. It's the team at the right moment in time, you know, that comes riding on, you know, some bigger wave, some bigger trend that is forming in the market. And then suddenly the stars align and, and scale happens from there. Um, so those are the most important ingredients of founders and, and kind of solutions that we want to see to be able to get conviction and make an investment. And what are some of the things like when you receive the pitches, like what are the, some of the things you look into immediately and maybe things that you find that are wrong, they're mistakenly put in or founders should not highlight that in their pitches, let's say maybe like the good and the bad and the evil. 
of the pitch. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, pitches that are overly complicated, you know, when, when we get pitch decks and I'm just like, oh my God, it would take me like half an hour to read this pitch deck because there's so much information, you know, that's an absolute no-no. Like your pitch deck should not be, you know, some type of like, you know, storyline of what your company does. I quite honestly also think that pitch decks are changing. So these days, I would say that every second pitch we're getting is not a classic kind of PDF attachment to an email anymore. It's a Notion document. It's a Figma document. It's a Loom video. So I think, you know, to all the founders out there, just find ways of telling your story. And of course, there's facts and figures that you put into the pitch deck. You have a team page, you know, you have a page about the problem in the market. You have a page about your product and the solution. You've got a page about market size. But you know, think creatively about how to best convey the specialty of that, right? And very often it's it's the founders who make us aware, not of problems we didn't know about, but make us think differently about solving them, right? And that's not easily done within a pitch deck, but there's other, you know, tool sets out there that can give you, you know, a bigger creative leeway maybe in telling that story and just, you know, also raising some type of emotional interest in, in having a conversation and, and hearing more. And Judith, I'm curious to know, how do you see an entrepreneur? So let's say you see, there's a person, you have a conversation. How do you know that this person is a founder or the founder for La Familia specifically and has that right entrepreneurial spirit that you're kind of investigating for? So I think there's two things um, that really always strike me. I think the first thing is I want to see energy. You know, some founders just energize you and you have a call with them and, and you can just, you can almost see electricity kind of emanating from their Even body. on the calls. <laughs> Even on the calls, you know, you just immediately, you get on the call and they're just upbeat and they, you know that wherever they are, they will be pushing the people that they surround themselves with, be partners, be customers, be their team members, be anyone. Um, so that type of energy and also being able to leverage other people that you, you know, come across for your own, you know, goals and, and your path in terms of building for the solution. I think that's the thing that I always get very, very excited about in early stage founders. I think the second question, and it's a question that we just, you know, ask within our team is we ask two types of, you know, sub questions and with regard to founder strength, is it, you know, would I want to work for this person? And, you know, sometimes you have founders and you're like, you know, if I were not, you know, having the best job in the world as a venture capital fund, like, hell yeah, I would go join them, build this. And even if you wouldn't work for them, the second question you then ask is, if I had another company and this founder's company was my competitor, like how scared would I be of this competitor? And I think that just gives you, you know, like a good hunch for, you know, the type of aura and the type of expressiveness that a founder has. Because at the end of the day, you know, at the seed stage, a big thing that we're betting on is like, are these people able to build a functional team? Are they able to convince other really strong folks out there to, you know, join them in building this? And yes, the founder is part of that, but the team is a huge part of the story as well. So those are some of the kind of mini questions that we ask in terms of finding the right founders. Love for that. it. Love it. And you mentioned also, I think, um, in one of the interviews I was listening, that you really prefer investing into doers versus strategists. Could you elaborate more on what does that mean? We always say that the founders who just go out there and build and get the first data points iteratively are, you know, just founders that we prefer in comparison to founders who have, you know, run tons of analysis and they come with you with like, the 30 pages of, you know, pitch deck that I described in terms of analyzing the market strategy, very often over analyzing the market strategy, because if you then ask them, you know, 
So tell me about some of the customers, you know, that you've spoken with, you know, tell me about, do you, is there like an early mock-up of the product that you've tested to get some type of feedback of whether that resonates? And they're like, no, we like need to raise 5 million to be able to do that. Mm, and then that's not something that we get so excited about because we think you really can't know it all as a founder. You know, you need to be able to go out there, you know, deal with the uncertainty and then over time, you know, like keep reiterating, you know, the things that you know and not, you know, fall prey to thinking you know it all because you never know it all, especially in the early stages. And you have to have conviction on something, otherwise you wouldn't be raising, but you also have to be able to you know, remain open to potentially you know, shift strategy a little bit in terms of moving into the right direction. And so we do have this bias for doers versus pure strategists. Before I go into the next question, I want to ask you, so do you also invest into founder startups outside of Europe uh, based in the US? Yes, we also yes. invest into U.S. companies mm -hmm. and we tend to only co-invest there because we don't have a team on the ground. And as everyone knows, the U.S. has a fantastic and very mature ecosystem. So we don't want to run into the risk of adverse selection. But we still think that for a lot of U.S. companies, especially the ones who need access to potentially a European customer base, we can be a fantastic partner. And so we try to partner with local funds on the ground and also find great seed stage opportunities there. Because I think the markets are very different and approach is very different from, let's say, European, but specifically German and the US. And in your opinion, what can founders in Germany or Europe learn from founders in the US and vice versa? Because I would assume the approach and the mindset is very, like, vastly different in so many ways. And maybe you could highlight those. Self-confidence, trust in your own abilities, trust in the greatness. I was um, speaking Germany or uh, European so, or US? So German entrepreneurs <laughs> looking at US role models, uh -huh, so to speak. Uh -huh. I really think, you know, self-confidence is something that we can still improve on. Seeing the glass half full and not half empty. Founders are role models for, you know, everyone who's joining them. So if you're not, you know, positive and, and vibrant and, and motivated for what you're building, then, you know, no one else will. So I think that's something that US founders still do a little bit, you know, better than European founders. But on the other hand, you know, not everything over there is great. So I think, you know, vice versa, especially when it comes to some of the, you know, engineering talent foundations, you know, some very, very deep understanding also about, you know, certain industries here in Europe. I think, uh, you know, the US founders that we meet sometimes are a bit prone to, you know, bullshitting and overselling. And then, you know, if you ask, uh, you know, why for the fifth time, you can kind of, you know, pick it apart. And, and you see that, you know, under underneath, there's really not so much that's golden and shiny. So I think, you know, really having a good sense of selling and marketing, because that's a big part of, you know, today's world and, you know, being able to rally a team behind you and, and get the energy flowing. But at the same time, also, you know, not losing sight of the fundamentals and making sure you're just building a good business and something that is there to thrive in the long term and not some, you know, kind of fast bushfire mm -hmm. that will then explode in your face. That sounds excellent. And how has pandemic affected your investment strategy And what are the plans for this year La Familia is aiming to, maybe new markets to explore, new investments to make? So for us, the pandemic, um, just looking with, within our team, hasn't changed all that much because we've been remote before. We did meet in the office a lot more often, which has stopped, um, you know, since March 2020. But, you know, a majority of our calls have happened on Zoom before. So it was really kind of a smooth transition into this whole new reality that we're now in. I think on the investment side, what we've seen is, you know, markets have gotten a lot stronger over the last 12 to 14 months. You know, I think we see record highs in the overall amounts of venture capital that's being deployed. 
within the European market, you know, and that's across all stages. So overall, the market is getting more competitive, but we at the same time are also seeing a tremendous amount of quality in terms of the founders that we meet. So, um, you know, I think we really are, you know, today witnessing the maturity of the European ecosystem, you know, gradually. But I think uh, when it comes to you know, U.S. venture capital interest that is now, you know, firmly hit uh, European ground when it comes to the strong founders that we're seeing. And when it comes to just the overall numbers, I do think there's a lot of things to um, be excited about. In terms of the uh, verticals that we're looking at, I think as any fund, uh, we we do ask the question of what does this all mean, you know, for the way that people work. Um, and I think we've only just scratched the surface uh, of that. Of course, we're not all using Zoom and Hopin and, you know, great platforms and we're getting food delivered all the time. But I think there's going to be a big kind of, you know, second order wave of, you know, what will that actually mean in the long term? What will that mean for you know, keeping employees productive. I think we're now seeing companies that are really, you know, struggling with, you know, just Zoom setups and they're they're realizing it's not as great as being in the office. But then they also know that we're not going to go back to everyone being in the office. So what's that new, you know, tool? What's the new suit of tools that would be able to really bridge this physical to online world, you know, more naturally than maybe it's happening today Um, and push the boundaries of how People are working. I think um, at the same time, you know, just concepts of life are changing. You know, lots of friends, I think overall founder ecosystem, people are considering, you know, moving, you know, like real estate, housing prices. Like there's so many things I think that have now, you know, come into motion. And I think we're all um, interested in in how that's going to turn out because whenever there's a shift in markets, new opportunities arise. And whenever there's a big shift in markets like now, you know, it's it's just in- incredibly exciting to see you, what that will enable. You're basically creating new future. And any any particular tech solutions you've been very excited about? So we've been very excited about the whole question around employee productivity. If you look at the, you know, kind of bigger macro statistics um, in terms of, you know, an aging society, in terms of, you know, just a shortage of skilled workers from many different fields that we need to build for in order to, you know, battle things like climate change, you know, like disease and so on and so forth. I think that opens up a ton of opportunity for making workers more productive. I think also automation is a big, um, big thing to be excited about, not something to be feared, as it's often framed in the more kind of conservative German media. Oh, the robots are coming to take our jobs away. I think in, it's the other way around. Like, let's, you know, hope the robots are going to come to do some of the jobs because we know we won't, you know, have enough humans to do it. So, you know, that's, the, I think that's a bigger thing that we're thinking about. You know, companies have changed over time. Back in the, back in the days, it was all about, you know, you owned land and you owned resources and that's what made a company. Today, it's, you know, you surround yourself with great employees and those employees need to be as productive as possible. And they also tend to stay with companies a lot, you know, less like long than in the past. So how do you get them productive, you know, in terms of learning and development, in terms of mental well-being, in terms of cultural connection? Like there's so many questions here that are still unanswered, but I think those tool sets will form the backbone of what makes a good company um, going forward. So lots of exciting things to invest in there. Before I wrap up with my last and my favorite question, I wanted to ask you, what are your personal plans? My personal plans for this year are a mix of, you know, 
devastation and uh, euphoria because I'm still planning to, you know, get married this summer. I was, you know, we had our civil wedding at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic with a just a small group of people in our closest family. And then we had this big, you know, wedding with lots of guests planned for this summer. And, you know, we're still not sure if it's going to be, if it's going to take place. And we're trying to, you know, form plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. So, yeah, that's something I'm very, very excited for. But let's see. Um, fingers crossed uh, for that for that big event. Um, and then my dog. Uh, you know, we're, we're part of the puppy pandemic uh, people. So we did get a, you know, a new dog or our first dog, you know, about seven months ago. He's the joy of our life uh, right now. You know, so just spending more time outdoors, you know, on walks and hikes with the dog. I think that's something to look forward to. My last question would be if you could give a spotlight to a woman who you would define an author of her own achievements. I would define Michelle Obama as a woman, an author of her own achievements. I think she's fairly, fairly well known. But for me, she's just such a source of inspiration, um, you know, during her time um, in the White House, but also after. I think just seeing a lady like her, you know, tread her path with so much grace, you know, really not taking no for an answer, um, really pushing, but, you know, never overstretching in terms of also making sure she brings the message across to a whole breadth of people, not all of which might agree with her. I think that's something that I find hugely inspiring, especially in the world that we're living in today. And so, yeah, she's, I think she's, you know, not, not one of the less well-known um, profiles out there, but certainly someone who just keeps inspiring me day in and day out. And I hope that maybe someday I get to meet her and, you know, just be able to, to ask her some personal questions. Judith, thank you so much for stopping by. I think this conversation is so enlightening, so many input from your side and thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.